0: This is life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse, learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Greetings everyone, this is Alexa and welcome to the very first episode of the show, I couldn't be more delighted to have you here and for us to be exploring the many life worlds of our planet together. Over the next 10 episodes, we're going to be speaking with ecologists, lawyers, technologists, artists, and a whole host of practitioners who have learned to get really, really close with the non-human world around them. Through them, we're going to learn what nature needs from us to thrive and regenerate, and how we can begin to develop those skills ourselves. As you'll see, Each of our guests is going to reveal extraordinary lessons that we can learn from other species and how we're all the better off when we're able to experience the world as one that is shared with other life. We're going to kick off the show by getting our feet down in the soil to talk about farming and agriculture. This is because farmers and those who work the land are very often the people whose entire days are spent immersed in the life worlds of the land, in the delicate stalks of green, the humming of pollinators, the pungent smells of cardamom or vanilla or creole maize, the beating of bird feather, and the crunch of parched soil underfoot. Their very survival depends on them seeing and interpreting the world around them through all of these other eyes. I personally have immense respect for farmers. I grew up spending a lot of time on farms, and my relationship to food has been defined by traveling all around North and South America spending time in the fields, trying to understand just where our food comes from and the astounding care and energy it takes to grow even the humblest sprout. I don't have to tell you here how destructive many of our current agricultural practices are to both the planet and to human health. Today, we're going to look at approaches that can help steer our global food system in a different direction. Our two guests are Lila June Johnston and Michael Abelman. Lila June is an Indigenous public speaker, artist, poet, scholar, and community organizer of Dine, Cheyenne, and European lineages. Lila studied human ecology at Stanford and is currently writing her PhD on Indigenous food systems revitalization. In our conversation, she describes millennia old methods of agriculture that most people never even know existed. These are massive landscape scale farms ingeniously designed by human hands to harness nature's flows, ranging from expansive clam gardens and kelp forests in the Pacific Northwest to the American grasslands. You'll hear from Lila how the social and governance systems needed to cultivate these hyper-abundant landscapes require a completely different human mind, one that is embedded in the life world of the land and in the sensuality of natural forces. We'll contrast this to today's hyper-fragmented agricultural landscape and ask how we could begin to restore our relationship to farming and to food. Our second guest, Michael Abelman, has been an organic farmer for over 50 years and is considered one of the pioneers of the organic farming and urban agriculture movements. He was the founder of Soul Food Street Farms, North America's largest urban farm, employing people who have been impacted by long-term addiction and mental illness. This experience has proven to him how farming can help to heal human hearts and minds. And he's going to share with us his intimate approach of farming, bringing us on a walk around his farm on Salt Spring Island, dropping clues and hints as to how you too can begin to listen to the land. Together, both Michael and Lila present a compelling view of how agricultural systems have a much deeper significance than just the provisioning of food. Farming, agriculture, and eating. Are some of the most direct acts that you can practice day to day in caring for the earth, because nowhere else is our dependence on nature so embodied, so visceral, and so raw. The Japanese farmer and philosopher Fukuoka once said that the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. I would add to that, very much inspired by what our guests share today, that the goal of farming is also for humans to learn how to become a reciprocal species, one that supports and feeds countless non-human lives through our acts of farming and growing and feeding. As this is our first time together, I want to point you towards the Life World's website where I will be compiling pages of resources and links on all of the subjects that we discuss here. For this episode, there will be pages on farming and food and agriculture. And I also want to point you towards A full hour long episode of both guests, which can be found right beside this. And I do encourage you to tune into that because if 20 minutes with these guys are splendid, then imagine the full hour. Now, without further ado, here is Lila June Johnston. Welcome to Life Worlds. I'm really excited to get into the subject of Indigenous food systems with you today. And before we begin, I would love to give you a chance just to introduce yourself before I launch into questions and content and things like that.
1: Sure. Yeah, everyone, greetings everyone. lila um, June my name is Laila June. Aro Nanisht I'm from the Nanisht Ejitachini clan of the Dene Nation. We are indigenous to what is now called New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. My father's mothers of the Cheyenne, Southern Cheyenne clan, from Anadarko, Oklahoma. My maternal grandfather is the Salt clan of the Dene. My father's fathers of the European clans. My first clan, the Nanish Ejitachitni, I get that from my mother. We're a matrilineal society. And Taos, uh, New Mexico, Dena I'm from Taos, New Mexico, originally. That's where I grew up. But I currently live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And yeah, I'm a musician, a PhD student or candidate at this point, and public speaker and all kinds of random stuff. But really, I just want to help.
0: Thank you so much for your introduction. I I took a listen to your podcast that you just launched um, as well before tuning in. And my own introduction feels so kind of woefully inadequate when it's just like I'm Alexa Furmanish, you know. And I don't know if we'll get into it in this conversation, but I really appreciated the piece and the writing that you've done around indigenous roots and that you went to a mountain in Switzerland, which is my homeland. And I'm actually doing a lot of research these days on my ancient peoples and you know pre witchcraft trials and pre Christianity. Who were the people of my land and what were their traditions and who are their gods and that's a really fruitful exercise that I'm just starting, and so I hope that in a year or two I'll be able to have some form of introducing myself that feels more more rooted in in tradition, ancestry. But for now, Alexan, absolute pleasure to have you here. <laughs> so I took a look at your profile before we chatted, and I saw that you're 150 pages down in a hundred-page dissertation process. So first of all, courage—that is a marathon—and thank you for making the time to be here. And I really hope that because our conversation is going to center a lot on what your dissertation is about, I truly hope that something that you say in this conversation can be enlightening to yourself, you know, as you speak about things, and can help inform uh, your work and what you're and what you're currently writing about. So, so I, I set that intention for our conversation. Thank you. To set the scene a little bit, if I understand correctly, your current kind of focus of work is on these indigenous food systems, and as a result of that also, hopefully, their revitalization. And I watched this presentation that you gave where you traveled, you know, you took the viewers from South America and Bolivia to Southern Australia to the American grasslands, uh, exemplifying a lot of the techniques used in those different places. And as you were speaking, my mind was firing in all these directions. Like there's so much to unpack in what you shared. Mm -hmm. And before asking you to get into a few examples that just helps to color like the abstract or like, okay, well what is an indigenous food system? Yeah, yeah. What you're illuminating, right, is that over thousands and thousands of years, our ancestors and indigenous peoples had these landscape scale massive ways of modifying the landscape but creating niches for other species adding to biodiversity funnelling like the natural flows and rhythms of the land into food production and sustenance but not just for ourselves but for many other species and so we kind of moved through the lands other species move with us and we were in this really symbiotic relationship which is obviously a massive contrast to our current food system right and so maybe to begin make that come alive for us and you know what are some even maybe current research examples that you're digging into that are really alive for you and exciting?
1: Yeah, um, first of all, it's a great description. Maybe you should finish my dissertation for me. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I wanted to make a quick note that you know the reason why you can't introduce yourself, perhaps in your traditional manner, we should never feel shame about that because that was systematically taken from us as indigenous European peoples. And yes, we do have the power to reclaim it and recover it and excavate it. And we shouldn't feel bad about not being able to yet. So there's that. So get into what you're talking about, like these indigenous food systems. You know, I'm from the Diné Nation. And I'm I've been raised the very pro Indigenous lens since I was born by my parents. And even to me, this stuff was new information. So, for example, the idea that Native people were not primitive, running around, eating hand-to-mouth, trying to find a berry to eat or a deer to hunt, but that these were actually architects of abundance. These were people who designed, like you said, entire landscapes into Gardens of Eden, augmenting the natural food-bearing capacity of the land, and not just for themselves, but to benefit other species as well. That's a key difference between indigenous food systems and say the American food system, which is very human centric. But these food systems were designed to help all things thrive, which is what makes them so noble and exciting and interesting. So for example, you know, we know in the Chesapeake Bay, looking at archeological evidence that people's harvested oysters out of the Chesapeake Bay for at least 6,000 years consistently And that these oysters actually grew in size over that span of time. So in the past 400 years, under American management, this oyster fishery has completely collapsed. And you'd be very lucky to find an oyster in the Chesapeake Bay. So it's not a given that these things just run on their own. They take management. They take care. So uh, the Algonquin and the ancestors of the present-day Piscataway peoples were taking care of that. Uh, Another example is the clam gardens in the Pacific Northwest, where we have coastal Salish peoples creating these really sweet intertidal rock walls that when the tide comes up and then it recedes, these walls catch all this sediment and water behind, creating these cool, stiller waters that clams love to live in. So one study found in Quadra Island, which is a massive island in the Pacific Northwest, that 35% of the coastline had these remnant intertidal rock walls that humans created to augment clam habitat. And these were dated to be at least 6,000 years old. So these are really ancient systems. That's a key feature of them. You look at the Great Plains and you you think about how there was these grasslands uh, and the grassland habitat is one of America's most tragic endangered habitats today. There's huge efforts and organizations dedicated to protecting the American grassland. Well, the American grassland was a human creation through the use of fire, actually, through the constant cool burns, we call them. You know, they're not scary burns, but they're cool burns. Native peoples would burn dozens of acres at a time, to actually recycle the nutrients to suppress the shrubs and the trees that would overtake grasslands if you let it to its own devices and that these grasslands actually supported a host of other species like buffalo elk deer antelope you name it sheep different species of sheep horses and so that's a whole other topic that my other friend did her dissertation on is that we actually did have horses here before columbus and they did not die in the ice age but whole other story so anyways these grasslands were anthropogenic in nature, meaning they were human-made. So for instance, the Miami Nation of the Ohio River Valley, they have a lunar calendar and their September moon is called the grass-burning moon because that's how regularly they would burn the grasses. And they have beautiful poetic discussions about how the fire actually brings life to the land. There's a fascinating book called Forgotten Fires, actually published in 1908, but they kind of republished it. Just giving a state-by-state run-through of all the ways indigenous peoples used fire as a management tool to manage this entire continent, literally every corner of this continent. And this was done to transform the dead plant tissues into ash, which contains bioavailable phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium to put into the soil. It also brings in charcoal, which creates habitat for microbial organisms in the soil, And you're actually injecting all this life into the soil system by burning it, ironically. And in the wake of those burns comes nutrient-dense grasslands. So maybe three weeks, even four weeks later, you'll see these beautiful green nutrient-dense grasses pop up and that attracts the buffalo. So Native people have often been positioned as we were following the buffalo. In actuality, the buffalo followed our fire. We created buffalo habitat with our own hands. And if it wasn't for us, as we're seeing today, the buffalo habitat is collapsing into shrubland and mesic forests. So those are just a few examples. You know, my dissertation is broken up into earth, fire, and water. The water being all the cool fisheries. The Chumash peoples of present-day Malibu oversaw shellfish fishery for 12,000 years there. They were hunting otters, I think, for 6,000 years straight and on and on and on, you know, just a huge wealth and diversity of foods that the Channel Islands once provided that are now almost, you know, extinct. And then the Earth, of course, looks at indigenous soil management, which is really germane to the whole regenerative agriculture movement, where they talk about, oh, we got to rehabilitate the soil. And it's like, yes. And we've already been doing that for tens of thousands of years. And if you would, Let Native people lead in their own homelands, we could do that in a way that not only heals the soil, but heals history and the dispossession of Native peoples of their lands. So that's the earth. And then the fire is, of course, all the ways fire was used. And then the final chapter will be air. To me, the air just symbolizes the knowledge, you know, the stories, the, the ethics, you know, it's invisible, but it drives everything. And so I'll be interviewing elders for that chapter of what was the value system, the principles and the assumptions that drove these systems, because I'm finding these were actually more important than the system itself. You know, the system was just a manifestation of something deeper, which was values, ethics and principles and goals and so on. So that's sort of the background on that research.
0: There is this phrase that you shared in your presentation that I've been thinking about for a long time. And there's like a sentence going around that really pisses me off and that I've written about which is, you know, the earth doesn't need us, but we need the earth and the planet and this weird kind of dualism. But I've often asked myself like, well, if spirit or evolution allowed us to be here, then we must serve a role. Like every single species serves a role, whether you like them or not, they do. Since I was a young child, like I've always felt like the role of the human being is to be able to be a witness to beauty, to the world. Like we really have an incredible ability to have song, dance, ritual, all of that. But then through that beauty to add to it. And I think that is our role as gardeners or as tenders to life. Because a few creatures do it, but not in the way that human beings have on a massive scale, which is modified entire global landscapes and create the capacity for more life to flourish there than would have been possible without us. And so this message, I think, is incredibly redeeming at a time where everyone's hating on themselves and hating on human beings. And we think that we're a cancer and a scum of the earth, but look back in time and we're not, right? And and we have had these capacities. And so maybe you could speak to this role of the human being as a keystone species. And that term is technical. And it simply means, as you know, that Our presence modifies an entire trophic web of relations around us in very potent ways, kind of like big predators or megafauna and and creatures like that. So what does it mean for you when you speak about the human being as this keystone species? And in particular, what couldn't thrive without us or what has thrived because of human tending?
1: Right. And I'm definitely in my early phases of exploring this concept, even though I've been looking at it pretty intensely for a few years. As you said, a keystone species is like a beaver, for example. They create this dam, which creates this whole habitat, which supports all these other species. So they're like a linchpin species or a species that, if you were to remove them from the system, much of that system would collapse. And so it's very exciting to remember that we as humans can be that. And as we know, we also cannot be that. And that's where the values and principles come in. You know, the, the value system of a culture is the rudder that steers that ship to either being a keystone species or being an extractive species. So we have the potential to do both, clearly. It's been proven. What's exciting is to remember, we can be a keystone species. We are capable of this. So for example, the Helza nation of Bella Bella, British Columbia, they hand plants kelp forests in the coastline as well as dip hemlock boughs into the waters when the herring fish comes to lay its eggs. And the herringfish is this incredibly important species for coastal Salish nations that provides like a huge caloric boost every February when it lays millions of bajillions of eggs over the entire coastline. So, by these humans creating kelp forests, they are increasing the surface area that the herring can lay its eggs on. With their bare hands, they are augmenting habitat for a species that then feeds not only humans, but feeds salmon and up the food chain to orcas. And the wolves can be found and the bears can be found eating the eggs off the coastline. And of course, there's still eggs left over to hatch and create the next generation of herring. So the herring is this incredibly giving being. And then the Western commercial fishers, they'll come in and they catch a bunch of herring, slice them open, get the eggs and dump the dead fish into the water. So it's such a clear example of our capacity to be either regenerative and a keystone species where we're actually supporting the living herring and even supporting the creation of the herring's children and their next generation. Or we are doing what's quick and easy, which is catching the fish, cutting them open, getting the eggs and throwing them overboard, which has damaged herring populations considerably. So the Helsinki are a keystone species to me. And, you know, we're always getting down on ourselves as humans. And that's sort of a relic of an old tradition of sinning and always need to repent for our own existence. It really lives through our culture, this idea that we are just this stain on the earth. And I really feel that this is not true. I really feel like you said, and elders have told me this in ways that make sense to me. One elder, Leroy comes last. He's from Fort Peck, Montana. He said, Look around you. We're out on the plains. It's about twilight. He said, Every star, every blade of grass has a purpose. And I thought, Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Every rock has a purpose. Every deer has a purpose. And then he looked me in the eyes and he said, And every human has a purpose. And I was like, Whoa, (laughs) you know, that makes so much sense. Why would everything be here for a reason except us? That does not make sense. And, you know, we have these interesting brains and these opposable thumbs that I think are here to be in service to our animal relatives, to our plant relatives. And in many places around the world, you see this time and time and time and time again. Indigenous cultures say we have been given a divine assignment by the creator to protect this valley. This river basin, this desert, this tundra, this is where we were put by the creator to serve. And I love that, this idea of a divine assignment. I see it in so many papers, so many different elders say it. And if we remember that, and that's what the Yoruba say, they say the word for human being is chosen one, not because humans are so great and they're above, but because they were chosen to serve the earth. They were chosen to be one of the stewards and to, in turn, be stewarded
0: by the earth. Yeah, that idea of divine assignment or service, it reminds me when I first read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall and she gives the example of sweetgrass. This was the first time I'd heard of this concept, and I studied ecology and worked on farms. No one had ever told me, hey, certain plants grow stronger, better, with human intervention, with human tending, and guess what? If they're not tended to, they will wither and die. And so again, this idea of like, leave everything alone, nature will come back. Yes, to an extent, but that's ignoring, I think, this critical point also when we are of service and when we're like, wow, that sweet grass needs me or like my community needs me, but it's my community beyond my human community. It's my earthly, natural community also need me. That is for me such an antidote to a lot of the toxicity that set in in our culture, both psychologically and physically into our bodies. And you also spoke in your presentation, we're talking about indirectly, right, to this word of reciprocity and this idea of like, when we feed ourselves, how do we feed others? And what does it mean to make sure that other animals are fed? And I think that when you look at modern agriculture, it's like, yeah, have some pollinator rows, but they want the pollinator rows there so that the crops are more fertilized for human use. And this is the reason why this podcast is like, I'm tired of just doing things for humans. What does it mean? and, And I'm sure you have examples of this. And you gave one with the kelp forest to create an ecosystem where you're actively thinking, okay, I'm feeding other animals. I'm not just feeding myself or my human community.
1: Well, I think that the words food and feed are words that are so misleading and rob us of the importance of reciprocity. And here's why. Food is this noun, right? But if you research indigenous words for food, it's always a verb-based word. It's like, for us, it's ch'i'an. But i'an is the root of that word, which is to eat. And ch'i, and the ch part is the energy. So ch'i'an, that energy, which is eaten. But the reason they're verbs is because food is this process. It's not a noun. It's, it's a really complex, gorgeous, sacred process by which certain life forms give their life so that another being may live. And that is whew, amazing. You know, I mean, think of a corn plant. It grows and then it gives its body to us. And that is so generous. I don't know about you, Alexa, but it it would be hard for me to say, you know, Alexa, I'm going to die for you right now. I'm going to give you my life right now so that you can live, so that you can keep doing your work, your podcasts, your research, all the important things. But that's what our animal and plant relatives do for us every day. They give themselves to us. And when you understand it from that lens, instead of just food, right? Which is the secular, denatured, demiracled (laughs) word that reduces this incredible gift to a noun that you can just throw to your kid in the backseat so that they can stay alive another day. You know, it's like, it's the gift of life to give life.
0: That was Lila June, today on Life Worlds, You know, it gets me out of bed in the morning, hearing about these examples where humans have been a regenerative keystone species. For me, it's proof that we do have a critical role to play in the unfolding of life, especially when we are in service to our animal and plant relatives. We now travel across the American continent to spend time with Michael Abelman, who is speaking to us from his glorious, sun-speckled, fragrant farm on Salt Spring Island. Michael has the uncanny ability to blend the most pragmatic and captivating elements of farming with very sincere reflections on philosophy and life. You're joining the conversation a few minutes in, where Michael has just described to me his first farm job at 18 years old, where he knew nothing yet about farming and somehow was managing a 100-acre organic parent apple orchard. Needless to say, the orchard was thriving, the 30-person team were having a grand time, and this adventure led him on to his next endeavor. If you can fill in in whatever creative way you'd like that gap between where you are today and that young bootstrapping guy living out of his unheated (laughs) trailer.
2: The best fertilizer is the farmer's footsteps on the field. It sounds very woo-woo and it is pretty hard to quantify, but that's really a key element. You know, moving forward from there, I managed to... Moved from there to an incredible project uh, north of Santa Barbara, California, a 12 and a half acre farm that I developed and became an island of agriculture floating in a sea of tract homes and shopping centers. It was a piece of land zoned for 52 condominiums. We produced 100 different products, different fruits and vegetables. Uh, we fed somewhere around 500 families on that land, uh, ran extensive education programs. And in the end, we were faced with the uh, one year to save that land from imminent development. And we were successful. In eight months, we raised, uh, it was a million dollars at that time, equivalent to about eight to 10 million in today's dollars. We formed a nonprofit called the Center for Urban Agriculture, which took ownership. We put that land under one of the first active agricultural conservation easements in the U.S., which gave the land a voice. It had to be a component as well. And that became the grounds in which I was able to both develop myself as a farmer, but also develop some of my ideas, some of the possibilities, the place where agriculture could become a stepping off point for inspiring and educating the community in so many other areas, you know, we experimented with all kinds of events, cultural events, music events. Uh, this is well before all this was happening. I mean, this is, these kinds of things sounds very um, typical to what we see today, but this was 30 years ago, 40 years ago actually. And so in the process during that time, the, the nonprofit that we formed, I called the Center for Urban Agriculture because that farm had become, as I said, surrounded by development. We were also at the time invited to develop a project in Watts in Los Angeles on a three acre plot that was the former home of the Watts Health Clinic, it was burned down during the uprisings in the 60s, and we developed a farming project there. And eventually I began to see that there was enormous potential to create both economic enterprises and food-producing plots on very small pieces of land within our cities. And this became kind of the template for my interest in urban agriculture. I saw that many, at that time, many urban areas had a plethora of abandoned lots, many people without work, no access to fresh food. And I thought, well, what if we could, uh, to use Wendell Berry's quote, solve for pattern? What if we could create enterprises that addressed all three of those issues? And we developed that project in Watts. It had mixed success because, if you haven't noticed, my skin is not black or brown. I'm not from that neighborhood. And while elements of that project continue to this day, in the end, we had to leave it for the people who live there. But if you fast forward, I don't know how many years, <laughs> 30 years, and 1,400 miles north, I was able to, in the city of Vancouver, establish something that has been quite successful and has addressed some of my concerns about development that I had way back when. We have learned to do some things right. And we now run a project which you referred to. Some people say it's the largest urban agriculture project in the world. I don't know if that's true. It is a social enterprise employing people dealing with long-term addiction, mental illness, material poverty, and it has a very simple mission, which I can tell you about if you want me to continue. <laughs> I'm talking a lot. <laughs> you know, Basically, it's incredibly simple. Our intention for that project was merely to give people a reason to get out of bed each day, a sense of purpose and belonging. Fertile soil to put their hands in, a sense of producing for the local community, something real and tangible. And we're working with people who have had a pretty tough go, where success is a very difficult thing to determine. <laughs> but I will say that we have people working with us to this day who've been with us for 13 years, who never previously held a job for you know, four or five months, who still are with us. We were given six months to survive in this project. We're now, as I said, 13 years into it. Hundreds of people have had training and employment opportunities. And I think the project has inspired similar endeavors in other parts of the country and the world. So that's so pretty exciting.
0: I think it's such a inspiring example of what can be done in a massive city's unused parking lots, right? Like you basically went to this devoid concrete emptiness. And if I remember correctly, when you first told me about this, you guys had to custom design these little um, boxes, right? Like these movable trays that the farming could be done on so it could be portable and shifted around. So you custom design, maybe that's even worth talking about, but you custom designed these farming plots. And then, as you said, people who are experiencing material poverty and previous forms of drug addiction. And for people who haven't been to downtown Vancouver, it's uh, it's also been described as one of North America's largest slums. It, it's a pretty sad place. You know, a lot of people suffering there. And, and yet you've filled these empty, vacant plots with soil and plants and life. And in a way, the healing of the individuals who are farming there. And I think for, for people who haven't buried their hands in soil or, or tended to a garden, why does this transform people? Why do you think it is that people who haven't held a job consistently their whole lives turn up at an urban agriculture project and they're like growing some herbs or some, you know, fruits mm. and then that transforms them? Yeah. Well, why is that?
2: Well, first of all, just to provide some context, we're producing 35 tons of food annually on large parking lots on a, roughly about 4 acres using this innovative system that you described of boxes that both isolate the growing medium from either contaminated soil or pavement and allow us to move on short notice, which is an issue for every city. Uh, So these are production farms and these are real jobs. And in fact, interestingly enough, our staff who never had farming experience, bristle if someone refers to the farms as gardens or or them as gardeners, (laughs) it's awesome. (laughs) I never thought I'd hear that instinct, but it's wonderful. And one of our staff who I was just with the other day, uh, Nova, who was a former meth addict, street kid living on Granville Street, coined the term farmily, which I love. I made it the chapter of uh, one of the chapters in the book that I wrote about the project. And I love that because it, it really embodies the essence and the importance of what we've organized this sense that the farm is more than just a production unit or a factory for food or a place to go to work. It is a place to connect. Okay. And it's a place where people come and they feel they belong and they feel a sense of purpose. And we're not social workers. We're not drug addiction experts. We're merely farmers that realize that the simple act of growing food of giving people uh, an opportunity to do something real in their lives. And that sense of purpose and belonging could have a profound impact on their lives. And I'm not sure I un- understand entirely how that works. I do know that there are physiological implications to working with living soil. We know that's actually been studied and demonstrated that, that working with soil affects people's serotonin levels. I have seen remarkable things where, you know, one of our First neighborhood farmers, Kenny, who said to me, you know, I come to work feeling miserable and I leave feeling renewed and happy. What's going on with that? (laughs) It's nothing that we are doing. This is something they are doing for themselves. We have merely set the table, provided this incredible place for people to come to. It's a safe environment. We provide some training. We provide, you know, the acres of soil and boxes and direction. But these folks are doing this for themselves and, and the results have been really amazing.
0: What you're describing, it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, the book, Once for Revolution by Fukuoka. And he says, the ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of the human soul or human beings. Yes, I love that. Right, you give two thumbs up there. And, and it is fascinating how it's not about the farming or the agriculture, of course it is, but there's this deeper process that's taking place inside of people. Do you think that a part of what those folks at Soul Food Street Farms or other people who are working the land, do you think that it has something to do with participating with quote unquote nature or other forms of life? Or perhaps in this example, it's, a, um, it's the human fabric that's being woven.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I can only kind of look to myself and see and acknowledge the healing that I have experienced as a result of the work that I have ended up doing. And I know that there are many days where I just, I don't want to get out of bed in the morning, you know? And um, maybe the weather's cloudy or it's rainy or especially in our shoulder seasons here, it's it can be tough to go out and want to work. There's something that happens once I get my feet on the ground and I actually get out the door, and I'm out in that space, something shifts <laughs> almost immediately. And I just feel so lucky that I personally have this opportunity to do that work because I think in many ways it's saved my own mental health, especially through these last three years. And so I, I'm not in other people's heads. I have heard lots of stories. Our staff are very free and open with talking about their issues, and with talking about their experience at Soul Food. but you know, when I reflect on my own experience, I kind of get it. I understand that something is happening when we reconnect with natural systems, because we are part of those systems. We have just forgotten that, you know. When we put ourselves back into the world where we truly belong and immerse ourselves in that world whether it's through farming or taking a hike or walking through the woods or whatever, we begin to reclaim that which is truly who we are and I think it's hard for me to articulate some of this because for me it's total magic you know I literally I can leave my house feeling I don't want to go to work I'm not feeling great today I'm grumpy and you know I'm out there and An hour later, I'm happy, you know. (laughs) And I see that with our staff and something's going on. Maybe you can articulate
0: it. I actually want to comment on, I think there's something different to working the land through farming or other means and just taking a hike. And I don't mean to diminish taking a hike. I obviously am an avid hiker myself. But there is something about the even closer observation and sensitivities that you need to manage a farm versus prancing through the woods with delight and picking things up and just being, you know, a joyful child, right? And they each have their place, but there's something about, as you said, observing and being inside of a natural system, being part of that system itself, but knowing that you have to listen really closely, otherwise, the harvest might not turn out quite right, or you plant too early, or you plant too late, or you don't. So the, the the stakes are higher, yeah, right. And I think that when the stakes are higher something interesting happens. And so right now you're in Foxglove Farm on, on BC, which is a farm that you've been running for quite some time. And what's your approach to farming there? Um, and maybe for folk who are listening who have never farmed, what's it like to observe a season and and tend to the different crops that are there? And if there's anything you can describe that can make it come alive, like what is it to farm with sensitivity?
2: I don't have any formal training in agriculture, uh, or just about anything else, except maybe the visual arts a little bit. But one thing that I did realize early on was the incredible importance of observation as being probably the most important agricultural skill. And I have developed that one skill quite thoroughly, (laughs) Uh, to the degree that it's almost too much where I can be on a road trip and i'm looking out the window at other people's fields making judgments you know <laughs> or, or observations you know uh it's amazing what you you learn to see and two or three times a week i walk through my fields with a notebook and while i don't hear voices the plants and the animals and the soil do in fact tell me what they need and i i mean that very directly i look at a situation, I look at a field and I know almost immediately what's required. Are the leaves turgid or are they drooping? What are the subtle color differences? I mean, green is not just one color. There's a thousand different gradations of green, you know, and what do they all mean? How does the soil feel to me and, and smell and sometimes even taste? And what is that telling me? You know, what various little critters have shown up from one day to the next and what are they able to communicate to me? And what are the plants communicating with them in order to have attracted them or, or having repelled them? You know, uh, So many subtle and not so subtle cues that come from those walks. And from those walks results a very clear list of what we need to do, the projects and the jobs for the week and the day. Understanding what you said, this is a incredibly spiritual practice, but it's an incredibly pragmatic and practical practice because I farm for a living. <laughs> we do this as an as an enterprise, just as we do at soul food and While I love the spiritual and ecological and social aspects of it, we have to pay the bills <laughs> and so what 's amazing to me is we have somehow found a way to marry natural systems agriculture to a market economy. <laughs> The instincts for both are often appear not to be on the same track, but somehow we make that work. It's really fascinating. And I find that we make that work better when the relationships are first and foremost so direct marketing is what my preference is so farmers markets and box programs or community supported agriculture programs marketing programs that actually build relationships versus the more anonymous ones of loading a truck for distant ports you know Uh, we as humans spend most of our time living (laughs) in one sliver and when you enter the world of the farm and of farming in the community that surrounds the farm, both human and non-human, you have to accept that unlike the dominant industrial model of agriculture, where the farmer is like the general standing in the field, you know, fighting off invading forces, uh, you have to, at some point, if you're going to do it well, find your way into the slipstream of biological activity of the natural world and see yourself as only one piece of this system. And to truly be successful, you have to find that place where you are not necessarily the controller or the only element. You are just a part of many elements. And to find that place, it's a wonderful feeling. It isn't that you don't have a major role to play. It isn't that you don't have work to do. or all the innumerable practical aspects of what we do. But if we don't find some sense of humility in this process, we will fail ultimately, you know. And when I say fail, I'm not talking about success or failure on the basis of economic. I'm talking about in the long term, you know. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if I've answered any of your questions, but I think the question was, exceptional and reminded me once again <laughs> that you know I'm just a one link in this chain you know and the other thing at 67 years old is that I <laughs> you know I'm finally coming to terms with my own mortality and that this thing is so brief and you know what can I do with the short time I have here that's really going to be meaningful you know
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks' time, where we will be rewilding the Earth's landscapes and learning how to reintroduce the vilified, feared, and misunderstood wild creatures back into their balance keeping roles. As per our tradition on the show, a tradition that is starting right here and right now, we're going to end with a surprising fact that brings us into a very special life world. We're going aquatic and underground into the kelp forests of the Pacific Northwest. These have been called the sequoias of the sea for their grand scale and size. However, they are actually giant algae, not plants, and they provide food and shelter for many, many organisms who use their thick blades as shelter and nurseries for their young or to weather rough storms. However, our kelp forests are disappearing at quite a massive pace. And so in order to talk about kelp forests, you have to talk about otters because it is the sea otters that prevent the sea urchins from running rampage all across the ocean floor. And what happens when populations of sea urchins skyrocket? Well, they end up eating through the kelp forests, growing to such extraordinary densities that the sea is cleared of forests, leaving behind an ecological wasteland. When you have otters around, they love to pry open the sea urchin's spiky shell and eat what's inside, restoring balance and harmony to the ecosystem. And so I invite us for a second to think about that delicate reciprocity of eating and feeding and nurturing that's happening right there just off the coast. That's it for me today on Life Worlds. I would absolutely love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on the website lifeworld.earth where you can also find all of the show notes and, as I mentioned earlier, an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.